It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I am delighted that you've made it to class this morning because we are just two days away from the end of the voting period of the 2020 election cycle. And I know that each and every one of you who are listening have not only made your vote plan, probably have already cast your vote, or you're working to help turn out the vote in this final countdown period. Now, this morning, I want to give you some final instructions as we roll into Election Day for the five or ten of you um, who may not know this already. Number one, if you are voting absentee and you still got that ballot at home, maybe in your purse, stop what you're doing. Fill it out, make sure to follow the directions, sign it where you need to, seal it in the envelope, and look up where you can drop it off. Do not put it in the mail. I know some states have provisions where it can be postmarked by election day. New York is one of them. But let's make sure votes get counted and find out where you can drop off the ballot at this time. If you have early voting hours available where you are, make sure you plan to go vote this weekend. Go to IWillVote.com and you can find your local information uh, on where you can go early vote. You can make it a part of your errands. Maybe you're going to the grocery store or Costco, or maybe uh, um, you should go after Sunday virtual service after listening to the show. You want to make sure you get your vote in early if you are able, if you are can, if you can, so you don't have to wait till election day. Think of Tuesday as the last day to vote, but try not to vote on the last day. Now, if you're voting on election day because you have no other choice, maybe you had to work, maybe you weren't able to get to any of the early vote hours, you weren't able to request an absentee vote, uh, absentee ballot. I want you to be prepared to stay there until your vote is cast. Yes, there may be long lines because some people will be waiting longer. Yes, that will happen, but I need you prepared to do so so that we can make sure your vote is cast. Now, I'll have more tips throughout the show, but right now I want to bring on my first guest who joined me for a conversation about all of the mamas on the ballot. That's right. From the mamala on the top of the ticket to the mothers running for Congress and state legislatures, mamas are on the ballot. Now, I've had a few of them on the show already. You've heard them and talking about what's at stake in this election cycle. And chances are you may have even voted for one of those mamas that will appear or have appeared on your ballot. I'm on the board of an organization called Vote Mama, which is a pack that not only focuses on electing more mothers up and down the ballot, but there also changing legislation on child care and electing school board members. You may remember the case we talked about with Luba Gretchen Shirley about using campaign funds in order to have child care when you're campaigning, right? So this is where this is born out of. So earlier this week, I talked to the president of Emily's List, Stephanie Shriak, who has a long history of helping to elect mamas up and down the ballot. So welcome to the show for the first time. Emily's List, head of Emily's List, Stephanie Shriag. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us in this, like, what, 
42 hours, 48 hours to election day. Ah, it's coming. It's coming fast now. I am so honored to be with you, Eljoy. This is so exciting. And I can't, uh, yeah, 48 hours. <laughs> well, I definitely wanted to contribute this last show before the election cycle, talking about all of the amazing women candidates. And I've been talking about it on Sunday Civics all throughout the year. But to dedicate this last conversation about all of the mamas who are on the ballot, that you can vote not only on the top of the ticket, but all the way down, state legislature, maybe lieutenant governor. There are lots of women on the ballot this year. And Stephanie, before we get into that conversation, since this is your first time, I want you to share with the audience your first civic action story. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, okay, so I was that kid in school that just wanted to do everything. Like I was always running for student government and I always wanted to be the class president, which by the way, I never was class president. I always lost and it was really embarrassing. Uh, but I will say the one thing that really got me started was I was, this is, this is going to age me, but it was the 1980s and I was sitting in church one day uh, with my grandmother and they were talking about, about nuclear weapons. And this was at the time where there was still the Soviet Union, now they're Russia, so I'm really aging us now. And I was little and I went, what? Like there's enough missiles that we could blow up the entire world like 40 times over, or 50 times over. And I freaked out and they handed at the church this book called The Hundredth Monkey. And I'll never forget it. If you haven't read it, it's super short. It's a really amazing book about, about how one person, or in this case, one monkey, but one, one person can make a huge difference. And I went back to Butte, Montana, where like Montana is the home of hundreds of Minuteman missiles because it's flat and high and all of that. And I was like, we have to get rid of these missiles. I'm like eight or nine or 10. And I spent so much time talking to everybody about trying to get rid of these, these missiles, which obviously I did not succeed in doing, but it, it, it woke me up to the power of those conversations that you could really start talking about it. And it was in this time period that, that internationally, I then witnessed like the wall come down and the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Of course, we have a different problem in this era, but that's how I got started was really that piece of things of like one person needs to have a conversation and then that person's gonna have a conversation and then all of a sudden you're organizing, right? And that was the beginning of just sitting in that, that little Episcopal church, getting handed that book. And that was the beginning of my, my, my civic action. And I haven't stopped since. I love that story because one, the number of people we've had on the show talk about their first entrance was as a child and recognizing something is like, hey, wait, this ain't right. Right? And being active and engaged, whether it's trying to save funding for their library or sitting in church and talking about refugees and in your case, talking about peace on an international level. Yes. And it's something that we need to continue to make sure that we are passing to generations so that kids realize that I don't have to wait until I'm eligible to vote to participate in civic process. That's exactly right. And that's why I always love student government. I really urge 
young women and men to get involved in student government in any way, even if you're just sort of volunteering, because then you, you start realizing your power because we all have power. We have power. It is our power to use. And we just got to start figuring out how to use it. And if you can start figuring out in junior high and high school, then like you keep on doing it. And we find that particularly for young women who get involved, they tend, they, they tend to stay involved in electoral politics instead of drop off where we've had that problem for years. I mean, truthfully, there's no reason why there aren't an equal number of women and men running for office, right? That should be a no brainer, except our culture puts this pressure on women to say, no, it's not really something you should do. And we're like, no, it totally is something you should do 10 times over and start young because you really do make that difference and you find your confidence and you realize how to use your power. And you know, it's you always um, interesting to me because even if we look at our culture of like teen pop movies and things of that nature, there's always the like young, it's always a teenage girl right, that's running for president, that's organizing bake sales and doing everything. And then there's this huge drop off between high school and college, and where they're introduced to mansplaining and everything. And then you have this drop of women running for public office, for state legislature, Congress, or even running for president. So as we shift gears to that, Stephanie, and talking about all of the amazing women that are on the ballot, specifically the moms on the ballot, talk to us specifically about what the uh, difference is when moms are in the room in the state legislature or in budget negotiations or even in Congress. Well, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of a no brainer, right? When you think about what the government does, it is to provide uh, opportunities for everybody, particularly the next generations. And so to have the women who are nurturing the next generation of Americans to succeed, why wouldn't you want their voices literally on every subject there is, not just like education or childcare or healthcare, but even when it comes to war and peace, foreign policy, uh, energy, climate change, like you name it, you want those voices of our moms who are looking at like how they're keeping their families together, those mothers who keep their communities together. I mean, we know how the moms are, I mean, my, my mother was like the center of social activity in our house. Like my father called her this, like the cruise director because nothing happened unless mom was running the show. And that's just how so many of the moms are. And so you can see where that one, their, their power of organizing and coordinating and getting everybody on the same page uh, is really good for actually moving legislation and laws but also their perspectives of what do you do when you're working and you've got a sick kid at the school and the school doesn't even have a nurse anymore because those have all been cut out and you've got to leave your job to go get your sick kid and you got to go take the kid to the PD, you know, to the, to the doctor and, and all of a sudden you're losing resources and it's just like the whole system's messed up uh, because we don't have school nurses anymore. Like just... And mothers can speak to that in such a real powerful way. And it goes with the kids, but it also goes up because how many of our mothers also take care of their parents and their in-laws and all of, right? They're sort of the center. 
And uh, we need those perspectives and those voices. And we need them from all races too. Because we, you know, not all, you know, we're always like, oh, one woman can represent all the women in the world. Okay, that's ridiculous because I haven't noticed that with men. It doesn't work that way, that way. So we, we need we need to have diverse voices with different perspectives. And that means different women from different perspectives across the board. But the mothers have that really special uh, understanding of one, how to keep a lot of balls in the air all the time. Because I, I have to admit, I do not have children, but I, I, I try to do my best as an aunt and that's hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I hold up mothers uh, in great honor because they keep a lot of balls in the air all the time. <laughs> well, connected to that, I, I got into a conversation once with a couple of guys and they were talking about why focus, you know, on moms, why not dads as well. And I was like, well, until we break the culture that women are the primary in terms of child rearing, in terms of juggling the household or managing the household, there is this gap of how much work that women contribute to their families and to their well-beings. So definitely having more of them at the table helps us as a culture, as a society, understand that. So then we can also shift the burden. <laughs> I'm lucky in my household that my husband is like, we don't, we don't believe in gender roles here. Like everybody doing everything, <laughs> you know? So he believes in that and making sure that I'm not taking on more than I need to, right? But that's not the same thing for everyone. And having the uh, conversation on a federal level, having it at the table when we're talking about budgets, having it on that conversation on the table when we're talking about school boards and what is needed to be provided. Men have operated in that position at leadership, but it hasn't leveled the playing field in terms of what women are supposed to do in terms of work. Right. Well, and we got to just, there's also the cultural piece. Like, I'm going to tell you, male candidates do not get asked. So who's going to take care of your kids if you win? They don't get exactly. asked that question. Exactly. All of our women get asked that question. Or, or our women who don't have children get asked, why don't you have, why don't you have children? What, what's going on there? What's, what's you, are you going to have children? When are you going to have children? So they've got to deal with that just electorally to get through. Now they can and they do and they win and it's awesome and they're amazing. But that just, just the fact that that mindset is where we start. You know, and then there are, let's just face it, there are differences between men and women. And I think that is a good thing. That is part of life. And that is why the balance of perspectives are so important. But when Senator Tammy Duckworth had her second child while serving in the United States Senate, the first woman to have a child actually in the Senate. Uh, and then she had to fight, fight with all of her sisters in the Senate to have the ability to take her daughter onto the floor uh, to take care of her during votes, which was not allowed. Like that, that was a battle. And one of the male senators came out and said, well, what are we gonna do if there's like 10 babies on the floor? And Senator Amy Klobuchar is like, we've succeeded. Like, <laughs> yay, like we finally have figured this out. I mean, so, do, and this, by the way, this wasn't in like, 1812, you know, this was like 2017, 24. I mean, it was like in the last five, six years, this is happening. 
So, well, she won in 16, so it wasn't that long ago. So I'm just saying that there's still things women have to do um, in the child rearing that's really, really important. And our men, we're so lucky because more and more men are picking up roles, uh, which is great. It sounds like you have a husband who's like right there and, and there's such great spouses in these situations. But then you've got you know, women like Katie Porter, you know, who's a single mom of three, who's, who's serving in Congress out of, out of California and balancing all of that. And it takes, as Hillary Clinton would say, takes a village and she's got good support around her and she's doing it. And thank goodness she is because look at what Katie Porter brings every day into the house. And the questioning that she holds people accountable to, particularly when it comes to consumers and what's happening to every family. So this is important, but we've got to have a structure that supports uh, these families, whatever kind of families they are. Well, I want to do a whole nother show after the election talking about our culture and as it pertains to children, particularly young children, where like they can't be seen and they can't be disruptive, like in our places, like they're it's the child is six months, they're going to cry, get over it. (laughs) So being able to get past there. So I want to advance. Obviously, we have, as your shirt indicates, you have on a Kamala shirt. And as you your shirt indicates, we do have a woman at the top of the ticket. Talk about you know what, I don't even have to say it. The historic nature of this, we have 48 um, hours to make sure that we turn out and make sure we have the first ever woman vice president. But we're hoping also that that trickles down, that it's not just at the top of the ticket, but that these moms who we're going to have on the show who are running for Congress, who um, are running for the uh, Senate, who are running in the state legislature, talk about this historic moment that we're in. It is, it is so true. And to have Senator Harris uh, in this position to be the first woman vice president, we got to get her there. I feel like I got to knock on something. I got to do some, you know, uh, knock out my superstitions, but she's just done a phenomenal job. Uh, and what it's going to mean to see her in the White House standing next to the president for every little girl and frankly, every little boy in this country it is a culturally changing moment. I've always believed this. You, you can't, it is really hard to be what you can't see. And that's what's gonna happen. So I just wanna take that moment of history, but also what it's gonna mean to continue what I believe is the sea change of women engaging in American politics today. And so the other thing uh, as you just brought up is that we have got a historic number of women on the ticket this general election across the board. They're running for Congress, they're running for Senate, but they're also running for school boards, city councils, legislatures. Um, I know you're gonna be talking to, or I believe you're gonna be talking to Sydney Batch uh, in North Carolina, uh, who is already serving and continuing to uh, serve in the legislature, who has uh, you know two beautiful little boys who has battled cancer, who has been at the forefront of fighting for healthcare, who's just tough as nails, uh, just like so many of our moms are. I mean, these are the women that aren't just going to lead today. These are the women who are going to lead us for generations that are going to take us into the new, the new America that I believe we're gonna be building in the, in the decades to come. These are the women and they are extraordinary. I am so excited about the possibility of their leadership, of what 
conversations will be brought up, what differently, what we can invest in differently in terms of budgets, because look, not only the federal government, but states across the country will be facing uh, uh, economic situation that we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, and to have their perspective, to have that varying degree of perspective at the table is something I'm definitely looking forward to. And you know what? No one talks about this. Um, using my Trump youth, no one ever talks about this, but I'm also looking forward to possibly having to protest women, right? I'm looking forward to their leadership. If I got to protest to get them to do something, I'm looking forward to that too. Like, but at least it's all good, like to be able for, to have a full participation and sort of not put on their shoulders that they have to be the perfect woman candidate, Correct. the perfect legislator that they, you know, will do everything perfectly every time. You know, something I say also about race, about Black folks is like, I want Black folks to be exceptional. I want them to be mediocre. I want them to be trifling. Like, I want them to be able to live the full human experience. And that's also what I'm thinking about for women. Like, I want it to be holistic. I want women to just be right? To not have to carry that burden um, oh and gosh. that load all of the time. I love, I, oh, I love that you just said that. And it is so important because it's just like lift, making all of the women meet these ridiculous, ridiculous, like pedestals that they have to be on. It's like, no, we're just people. We're just doing our thing. We do our best. We don't always get it right. Um, and the last time I checked, the men don't always get it right either. In fact, <laughs> they get it wrong a lot. So come on, <laughs> give us a break. Give us a break. Uh, we really do need to have some forgiveness, uh, but we also need to back them up when they're trying to do big things. And that's the other thing that you're talking about. Like we have to be there for them. I mean, we, I'm so proud. And I, we say it at Emily's List all the time, you know, because this is what we're committed to. You know, we're committed to electing pro-choice Democratic women because we believe that they will change the debate and they will change the policies that will change our country for the better. And they have, but we haven't gotten quite to parity yet. And I'm like, in my mind, I think we got to go further than that. I'm like, make up for some lost time. Like, I just feel like it's, you know, if women were 60, 70% of the legislatures, I'd be already a hundred, whatever. But, you know, it's time, it's time to do that. But we, we also need to, as citizens, as activists, as voters, stand up and back those women. Because as I said at Emily's List, we believe that it is truly, truly a brave thing to do to put your name on the ballot. It does put your whole self out there, including often your families. And that's why, you know, for so many of these, um, particularly the moms, they wanna know that their kids are gonna be okay, that this process is gonna be positive. You know, I've recruited a lot of women. I've also recruited men. I've had way more conversations about where do they go to school? How do I handle the kids during the campaign? How do I handle the kids? This is before they even decide, before they decide to run. I have way more of those conversations with women than I'd have with men. Because now not all, some of the men do ask some of those questions, but the truth is, they know that they've got spouses that are going to take care of most of that. That's the honest to God truth. But the women candidates, they know they got to make sure they don't, they can't risk it. And that's, that's why we do the work we do. And that's why I think it's so brave for these women to put their name on the ballot, because the truth is you do put your whole family out there. You can protect and you do, and you can, and you should. 
I think mo more so than not, it's a great experience for the children to see the service of their mothers, but it is something that, that we talk through all the time. Well, Stephanie, thank you so very much for taking the time to join us in these uh, last couple of hours. And as I keep reminding everyone, just because it's the last day for you to vote, the way that we are voting this time around does not mean we're going to automatically know on election night what the results are. So stick with it. Don't get discouraged. And please, if so, if we are successful and we do a change on the federal level, it's not time to go home. It's time to go big. So thank you very much, Stephanie. And we'll look forward to having you back for more conversations. That sounds great. Thank you. And good luck to all of us. And if you haven't voted yet, make sure you get that vote in. Thank you so much. That you must do to start in this world. Like when the T-shirt, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the T-shirt? I go let you know. Who is the T-shirt? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher. And we are counting down until election day. Tuesday, November 3rd, is the last day to vote. So if you're listening to me right now, you can go to IWillVote.com and see if there are early voting hours for the rest of the day this Sunday and see if you can go get your vote in now. Then you don't have to wait until Tuesday. Then you don't have to wait in the line. Then you could sit home, you could do your work and not have to rush out. So go to IWillVote.com and make sure you do that make sure you have your vote in from there. Now, we just had a conversation with Stephanie Shriak, the president of Emily's List, talking about the different perspective that mothers bring to budget negotiations, to legislation, and overall in our society. So I wanted to talk to another mama that's going to be on the ballot, this time in the state legislature in North Carolina. And I brought her to the front of the class to talk about her perspective, not only with the COVID pandemic, and what perspective mothers bring to overall elected leadership, but also about child welfare. Sydney Batch is a Democratic member of the North Carolina General Assembly. She represents Wake County, that's the 37th House District, and she is another mama on the ballot running for re-election. Welcome to Sunday Civic, Sydney. Thank you so very much for having me. No problem. So now the first thing that we have guests do is their first time on the show is to tell us the story of your first civic action. That's really interesting. So uh, it's funny you should ask that. A couple of weeks ago, someone was just asking when I thought that I would get involved in politics. And three years ago, I never thought that I would be civically engaged. Um, but I didn't realize when in campaigning, they give you opposition research and then you do your own research for uh, self-research books. And I didn't realize that even back in the 10th grade, I was actually being quoted in newspapers. I completely <laughs> had forgotten about making sure that there were equ there's equity uh, in, in our actual schools. And there were some issues going on in the high school that I was at about how there was disproportionate uh, treatment with regards to African-American students. Uh, so apparently I did it in 10th grade and I have always been this person. I just didn't realize that it had started that young. So I think it probably started um, way back in high school. So one of the things that has been interesting, learning a bit more about your background is this career um, that you have and, you know, focus that you have in child welfare. So I am personally a foster mom. 
And so I have become very interested in in the bureaucracy of child welfare, how so much on the state level needs to be reformed or addressed in terms of dealing um, with children and families who are in that position. Talk to us a bit about your career and getting up to know a little bit more about what you're doing there and how you're addressing the issue in the state legislature. Well, thank you for fostering because it's something that we need more people to do. We also need uh, to actually increase the foster uh, board rate because it's very difficult, as most of us know. I've got two boys who are seven and nine and they eat me out of house and home. And the board rate that most foster parents get would only be a week and a half of food for them right now, right? So we need to actually talk about how we make sure that we're supporting families and kids. Um, We know that the research says that kids, if they can be reunified safely, they are better off in their families of origin. And so I want to be in a situation in which we are making sure that we are always looking for and engaging with um, our foster parents to make sure that they can co-parent, right? There are some foster parents who are who want to adopt, and that's fine. But there are other foster parents who are there to truly nurture a relationship and support parents and their children in the process of being able to reunify. And so what we've seen over the years, and the federal um, legislation has actually come out to actually work on uh, family preservation and family first services so that they're going to try and prevent removals in the first place by making sure that services are provided to families who are struggling. You know, I'm really fortunate and had a, had uh, parents who were great, had a strong safety net, had a lot of uh, resiliency in that, but not every family has, you know, two parents who have two jobs, parents who are abused uh, or, you know, abuse substances, et cetera. And so we have to try and figure out how we can support kids in a system where through no fault of their own, they end up in foster care or being removed from their parents' home and give their parents the skills that they need to not only hopefully try and reunify, but if they don't reunify and their children are adopted, they don't go on to have other children um, and end up in the same cycle. And what I found as a representing parents in the child welfare system is that about 85 to 90% of my moms have been sexually abused or physically abused as kids. And they just didn't get the treatment and the services that they needed when they were young kids. And so what ends up happening is they end up in the same cycle, not having worked on their own traumas. And we know how adverse childhood traumas are really damaging and can affect not only your health, but your mental um, well-being, and also just your your future with regards to what kind of jobs you're going to get, whether or not you're going to have a higher likelihood of being homeless. So those are some of the things that we need to make sure that we are doing to reform how we're really treating families and being family focused and making sure that our kids, even if removed, have the best chance of making sure that they get mental health treatment and work on those childhood traumas so they don't have the adverse effects that we see across the board um, as they grow older. Yeah. Now, since you've been elected, I think back in 2018, correct, um, yes. is when you elected, you've introduced a, a number of different varying um, uh, bills in the legislature. Talk about some of the other successes or important issues that you have worked on thus far and looking forward to do once you're reelected. <laughs> uh, so what I would say that the, the old ad, adage, and I think the way that I look at legislation and I end up um, filing a lot of legislation around this same adage is a rising tide lifts all boats. I believe if we file legislation and we work on bills and policies that are going to help working Americans and working families, we actually are going to strengthen every single person. Every North Carolinian is going to be better off because we're actually putting legislation forth that's going to help the one those who need it the most. And so we'll have a stronger, healthier economy, et cetera. And so in that regard, I think we're in a really good position to be able to um, ensure that 
you know, paid family leave is a bill that I was really proud to sponsor. And so I sponsored uh, that in 2019 and only 12% of North Carolinians have paid family leave. And we see with COVID in particular, so many people had to leave their jobs. Some people recover from COVID in a couple of days, some in months, um, but they can't take time off to take care of their children. All the frontline workers and disproportionately those don't have paid leave, right? They don't even have health insurance. So I've sponsored Medicaid expansion bills. I've sponsored paid family leave bills. I've uh, also been co-sponsors uh, and primary sponsor to increasing mental health professionals in our schools and nurses, um, but also funding in North Carolina, which is pretty abysmal right now. Uh, we don't we don't fund education, public education, the way that we need to. So most of the legislation that I've really worked on is making sure that we can sure up and improve the systems that we have and help those who need it most. Speaking of COVID, for a number of states, we're going to be in this recovery from COVID-19 for a while. Not only the health and physical aspects as we continue on for research, for vaccine, for social distancing, we we don't have a clear understanding yet of how long that will be in the physical manifestation, but there's also the economic um, recovery that will need to happen. And we're, you know, talking about what needs to happen on the federal government, but from a state perspective, there is loss of revenue, there are businesses, education, so many things that states will have to address, particularly as we go back into a session, whether the federal session or the state session. Talk a bit about, from your perspective, how states like your own are meeting that challenge and what we need to do. So I think one of the uh, struggles and what we really need to emphasize, because states are going to go, we're, gonna, we're all going to have revenue deficits, right? We're, we're going to, we're not going to have the tax revenue that we normally have because of COVID, because of the unemployment. And so what we need to do in particular in North Carolina is uh, fix one, our unemployment system. We have one of the most antiquated and cruel unemployment systems in the country. And so actually as primary sponsor to improving our uh, unemployment system. So right now it's only 12 weeks of, of uh, 12 to 13 weeks of benefits. And it's one of the lowest benefits in the country. We need to restore that to 26 and raise the weekly amount. And so that's one of the ways that will actually help so many of the families out there who through no fault of their own can't find employment because businesses have closed. And as a small business owner, you know, I think it's really important that we make sure that we support them in any way that we can. Here in North Carolina, our governor had placed, um, you know, different orders for reopening and we gauge that based on the public, public health officials, which I completely supported him in to make sure that we, of course, can reopen safely and make sure that people in our economy can recover um, and also protect public uh, health during that period of time. But during that time, you know, I, as a small business owner, we, you know, me and my law partners, we took a pay cut so that we could actually continue to employ our staff so that we didn't have to furlough them because we pay for their insurance and we didn't want them to not have insurance during this time. And so some small businesses um, and a lot of small businesses have done amazing jobs at trying to, of course, you know, cut the fat from that and then also take pay cuts uh, themselves to support their employees. But a lot of businesses, unfortunately, have closed and they don't know if they're gonna be able to reopen. And so we need to support those businesses through no fault of their own who can't open reopen because they're in one of the higher risk categories with regards to uh, COVID and COVID exposure. And so I think we need to make sure that we provide them grants. We've done a great job in North Carolina of creating and increasing the loan program. 
uh, so that businesses can get loans. But if you can't reopen, you can't pay back the loans, right? You got to have income. And people and some companies have been very nimble in businesses to figure out how they can go ahead and shift, but not every business can do that. So we need to make sure that we're supporting the small businesses who have closed by proposing and giving them grants. So I have filed amendments to issue $50 million worth of uh, small business loan grants to uh, businesses who have closed and who didn't necessarily get the PPP funding, right? That they would prioritize those companies who didn't have it. And so we really have to be creative about how we can help sure up and also support those businesses who've had to shutter their doors to help them reopen in a way in which um, it's beneficial because we know that small businesses are the number one employer in this country. And by getting them back on their feet, we're also helping our economy by hiring employees as well. Mm. Lastly, I would say campaigning in this environment has, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's something that I pers- personally very well. Talk to us a bit about wh- how you are engaging with constituents during this time and trying to be safe, keep them safe, but also meet the needs of your constituents. Yeah, that's a great question. So early on when we, um, when the state shut down here in North Carolina, what I did was we used phone banking and we used volunteers in the campaign to actually reach out to constituents and ask if they needed help with any services. So there was there were a lot of issues with our unemployment system um, with regards to just having long waits, people not being able to get through, et cetera. And so instead of calling and doing the regular campaign call, hey, you know, I'm your representative and let me tell you all the things and will you support me? It was more of the, what can we help you with, right? Or do you have food insecurity issues? We have kids who don't have, uh, when we were virtual schools, they didn't have hotspots, right? They didn't have any Wi-Fi at their home. They didn't have computer and devices. So working with businesses who were giving out <clears throat> these devices, we went ahead and we reached out to constituents, found out what they needed help with, and really connected them with the services. And so I had the good fortune of, because I was in office, being able to at least have the ability to call somebody in a department immediately, you know, in the government and say, hey, I've got a constituent issue. Let's go ahead and get this resolved. And so it, that was really, really helpful. We did that for the first uh, several months of the campaign. And then when things, um, I think, got as normal as normal can be uh, these days, we ended up shifting to more of a campaign strategy. And so what we've done is, you know, I, I firmly believe that we need to keep people safe. I don't want to make people uncomfortable, put them at risk by sending out volunteers to canvas at their doors or to have me out there and to put my volunteers, frankly, at risk, depending on what home they're at. So we've decided to not do any type of uh, canvassing. And that's the best way to, to connect with voters. But we, I just firmly believe that we need to keep them safe. So what that's meant, what that means is that I've had to increase the amount of mail that I've sent, uh, text messages, digital ads, TV, to connect with voters where otherwise I would just be knocking on their doors and engaging with them. And then the way that we've actually shift, shifted is that we're doing a lot of phone banking. So I call a lot of constituents and talk to them. Um, and then I have volunteers who are doing the same. So COVID has certainly met, uh, has its challenges with regards to campaigning. There are a lot of campaigns that are still out there canvassing, knocking on doors with masks, without masks, that's their choice. But I believe that the most important thing that I need to do is to make sure that my constituents are safe. And I don't know, and I don't believe that knocking on their doors in the middle of a pandemic is the way to do it. Yeah. Now, the last, I promise the last question is the most important question. Your most important constituents, your two boys um, that are eating you out of house and home, how are they adjusting um, to the pandemic or do they um, even realize a difference? Yeah, no, they definitely realize a difference. Um, We have, they are, we're we're actually transitioning back into school um, and a second grader will go 
every day soon. And then my fourth grader will go once every three weeks because they can't socially distance um, in the class because of class sizes. So they will so I'll have a hybrid schedule for my, my kids. Um, they've done as well as they can. They're really fortunate, right? They haven't, have, they haven't had to worry about parents who have lost their jobs or don't have health insurance or trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Um, but it still has taken a toll on them, you know, and every kid with regards to not having the same schedule uh, and not being able to see their friends and the socialization that they have. So I, I feel very fortunate because we don't have the same struggles that a lot of families are going through. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have a niece who I can pay who, who's in college and was in doing virtual classes uh, to go ahead and help out with that because my husband and I are litigators. So unless the judge wants my, you know, eight, my seven-year-old to be second <laughs> there, I can't bring him to court with me. Right. And that's the thing is like, there's so many people who have kids who have these frontline jobs or have jobs that they can't just work remotely. If you have a job that you can work remotely, it's still almost impossible because homeschooling your children in virtual school and then still trying to do your jobs hard enough. Um, and so I am very fortunate to have had um, the ability to actually just pay my niece to be there for them but they, it's definitely taken its toll. I think the yeah. silver lining of campaigning with COVID is that normally they don't see me nearly as much because I'm running the streets and I'm at all of these different meetings and I have to go and canvas. And so they'll see me late at night. Now I'm home and they'll photobomb or, or run into a Zoom meeting um, potentially and embarrass me, uh, <laughs> but it's but they get to see me. So it's a lot better. And so today they're not doing that because I'm at my office, um, but normally they at least have gotten to see me a lot more and I think that that's been really helpful. So I'm hoping that, you know, people do what they need to and we can finally get our, you know, our state back on track and our numbers down. We can go to a point where kids can go back to school every day because they certainly need the structure. <laughs> well, thank you so very much, Sydney. And thank you to your boys and your family. <laughs> We're looking forward to uh, your reelection so you can continue representing your constituents and doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. How can it be? Now, before we go, I have a few more thoughts to share with you. Since the 2016 election, we've seen an enormous amount of civic participation. Yes, we've also seen a lot of political division and people doubling down. But from protests in the streets to an increase in candidates for local and federal office, there has been an explosion of engagement in our political process. But as we know, civic engagement does not begin and end on Election Day. No matter the outcome after voting ends on November 3rd, we can't afford to stop our civic activism. The numerous challenges that have been put upon us due to the pandemic on the federal level, the state level, and even in our local communities combined with, remember what's coming next, redistricting, and also the social justice reform um, will require us to have continued involvement. The COVID pandemic has colored our lives in so many new ways. The way our children attend school, to how we work, down to how we have funerals to honor our loved ones. Now, while we may have to continue to exercise caution to protect everybody around us, remember, if you're going out to the polls, whether to volunteer or to vote, make sure you wear your mask, wash your hands, have hand sanitizer. You want to be safe while you're going out in the world. While we're doing all of that, the world outside has not stopped. The rent is still due. <laughs> we still have to feed our families. The accumulating debt and loss of revenue that 
um, states and local communities are facing is going to have a direct impact on our economy. Wall Street, even though it's showing record gains and things of that nature, that's not the economy. The market may have appeared unscathed from the impact of COVID, but the same can't be said for uh, the main street in your town, those small and medium-sized businesses, because truth be told, those small and medium-sized businesses, they actually employ nearly 50% of the workforce. So it does not matter if the occupant of the White House presents hostile or friendly. We still have to continue to raise our voices to ensure that the post-COVID economic recovery doesn't favor just like, you know, the big corporations, wealthy people that already don't pay their fair share. The budget shortfall that states and um, our communities are facing, this is all the way, this is like two years from now. Right. This means that we will have to battle with governors and our state legislatures to preserve programs and services for the most vulnerable so they do not plunge further into poverty. Now, the economic recovery isn't the only battle to fight. Remember, we just ended the counting period of the 2020 census in a shortened time frame. <laughs> and the next step in the process is reapportionment and redistricting. So in the per early part of the year, states are going to get notified on what their population numbers and then also what their congressional political strength will be. Then states will have to draw new lines. They'll have to draw the new congressional lines, but then they'll also have to draw state legislator lines and maybe your city council lines if it's based upon that. Now, we got to be on the offense during that process so that we are not saddled with gerrymandered districts for a decade. That will leave our communities politically disenfranchised. And at the same time, all of these voting issues that we are experiencing across the country, we need to address that not only when the next election comes around, but we need to do that in state legislatures. And we also need to pass a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in Congress. Now, while people are engaged now, People are turning out in record numbers. We see early vote numbers increase, absentee ballots increase. We need to remember that putting a new administration in the White House and electing a new Congress is not in of itself. It's not the, the pill that's going to rectify everything that's already so wrong. Everybody's talking about going back to normalcy um, versus the chaos we've been experiencing with the current president. But truth be told... Uh, the old normal wasn't as good, wasn't good either. We still have to push through, particularly for those who think, oh, if we just go back to the status quo, if we just go back to the regular normal, things will be fine. And for a lot of our communities, they weren't fine and we can't go back to that status quo. It wasn't enough before then. And we have to stick with that same thought process that is not going to be enough going forward. For instance, we didn't have a justice system that held pol uh, police officers accountable for unjust deaths before Trump was in office. So we have to continue to demand for accountability and completely reimagine the role that law enforcement plays in community public safety. There are a whole list of things that law enforcement responds to that I'm sure we can all agree, whether or not you believe in the defund the police phrase, I need you to care more about the lives that we're talking about here, okay? And we know that there are a number of things that we don't want an officer with a deadly weapon and qualified immunity to show up for.
That work must begin with us. And we can't rely on either of the presidential candidates to do that work on their own. Can you trust Biden to do police accountability on his own? Can you trust Trump to do police accountability on his own? No. So we all have to be involved in that fight. And lastly, our children are who will need our civic activism more than anybody else. The pandemic has completely disrupted their education and their social and emotional wellness. Public education and child care were already inequitable and COVID just like just made the issues worse. The economic strain on states will mean that they have to determine what programs and services they can cut. And our children's programs like enrichment programs, summer youth employment or, you know, community centers, things of that nature. Those will be on the chopping block. People will say that we can't afford to do that. And we have to be the ones there that say we can't afford not to. We have to speak up for them the most because they are bearing such immense weight at this time now so how do we do this it seems like a lot because I'm talking about all of the stuff all of the stress and the economic strain and the health strain our family strain we didn't even get into that the strain that families are experiencing right now um, during this time but the answer is simple we stay engaged as much as we can. I'm not asking you to do more than you are at this point. Some days I'll give more, some days you'll give more. Because no matter who is in power, we have to stay in the fight or we can easily be in the same place again. We have to be that consistent voice in the era of those who represent us, telling them not to go back to the status quo, not to go to the new normal, that we want to seek a new normal because believe me there are going to be other people in their ear and we can't have our voice not represented there right we want to seek a new normal where the health and the prosperity of all of the American people are prioritized not just the wealthy corporations they don't already you know they already don't pay their fair share right and so we don't need that to be a stark difference going forward so if after November 3rd the same administration is in power the fight for our lives continue. If leadership in Washington changes, we still can't afford to celebrate and just go home. We keep fighting because the fight was never about party. It was never about an individual presidential candidate. It was never about any of that. It has always been a fight for our lives, the future of our families, the future of our children, the future of our communities. Let's not get caught up. And even for me, I try to remind myself not to get caught up in the partisanship, but really this is a fight for our lives, right? We want health care in this country. We can all agree that. We want an equitable economic uh, uh, future. We want equitable education for our children, right? We want clean water. We want to, you know, follow the science that leads us and say that we need to reduce emissions so we can live on this planet longer and it not contaminate our water and our air and our land those are all of the things we want and it doesn't matter if you're a democrat or republican or independent or you know not registered or anything everybody wants that same thing and so in order for us to get it we have to be engaged and stay in the process because people will not do it out of the goodness of their heart on their own because there are other people in their ear we have to continue to be in their ear remember i said how can people represent you? How can people lead you if they never hear from you? And so we need to stay consistent, stay engaged. And even if we win, 
even if we win um, this November after November 3rd, don't take your toys and go home. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Sunday Civics, this Sunday, I'll see you at the polls. <laughs> um, I'll be watching along with each and every one of you on what the outcome is, but I'll still be back here next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics. Have a good one. <laughs>